Father, in no way, in no way could we pay the debt. Lord, it took Your Son, Jesus Christ, to pay that debt, to pay that ransom. And Lord, even as He paid that ransom, were we to send ourselves back in time to the cross, our voice would be among the scoffers. And yet, Lord, You sent Your Son and Your Son willingly, eagerly went to the cross for the joy set before Him. Father, we pray that today our hearts would be turned to this One. That we would understand in some small measure, not just the sacrifice, but the love. So, Lord, open our hearts to hear what it is that You have to say to us. Through Christ our Lord, we ask. Amen. Please be seated. So it is that tomorrow the nation will commemorate Veterans Day. And as Ron mentioned, it was just uh, uh, on this day... 100 years ago, that uh, the war to end all wars was completed. So it is at precisely 11 a.m. this morning, Eastern Time, 12 for us, the Vice President will be laying a wreath at the tomb of the unknown soldier. Unlike a Memorial Day which honors America's dead, Uh, Veterans Day honors all those who have served, dead or alive. We honor them. It's a moment that we worship together. Something that you may not know, kind of interesting to me, is that a hundred years ago, on this day, while I am speaking... uh, We have to adjust for the time change, of course. But nevertheless, the 7th Dragoon Guards of the British Army, a cavalry unit, cavalry unit, uh, attacked the the Germans to take over a bridge at uh, Lysens and uh, Dinder in Belgium. And as it would happen, it was the last charge, the last cavalry charge of World War I. And the final hostilities of that charge actually ended as the bells were ringing across Europe at 11 a.m. And it would be the last cavalry charge of any Western military. My grandfather served in the the cavalry. Those two words are getting to me today. Cavalry, as opposed to Calvary, right? The cavalry during World War I. But with the close of World War I, what we ended up with was the end of a 4,000 plus year reign of the horse. The time of the war horse came to a close. By 1918, the war destroyed the world that existed. Not simply the world that existed in, in Europe, 
But the world that existed in our minds was destroyed in a mere four years in, from 1914 to 1918. It toppled four empires. It created the first communist state. It destroyed the confidence in idealism of the liberal humanist and ushered in the pessimism of the postmodern society, which we're not really feeling until this day. But the era of optimism was over. The era of dystopia had begun. The era of the war horse was over. The era of the machines had arrived. We have to ponder for a moment what all this means. I'm only going to look at one particular thing, and that's, that's the war horses. Why did we have war horses to begin with? What function uh, did they serve? Well, it's a fairly easy answer. It was security. It was the security of home. It was the security of the nation. I mean, nations put great investments in the means of their defense. We even have a department named after it, the Department of Defense. It's dedicated to it. I mean, the horses that we see today are are strictly ceremonial. There's no such thing as a uh, war horse. Uh, the closest we come with real horses is maybe mounted police and parks and so forth. The, the horses that we have today come in mechanized form. Mechanized and or air. I mean, living horses are restricted only to ceremonial issues. And yet, there was a time when horses were the defense, the offense, the pride of Egypt, of the Philistines, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, you, you name it. You can't read Troy without seeing the importance of the chariot and the horse. But what you may not know is that horses may ultimately have led to the Babylonian captivity. What you may not know is that horses may have actually been the hinge upon which Israel turned from trusting God to trusting in self. Listen to Solomon instructing the, the future leaders of Israel. He tells them, don't worry, don't worry about enemy horses and chariots. He tells his young students the same thing that David told him when David said in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord, our God. And again he wrote in Psalm 33, 16 through 18, There is no king saved by a multitude of a host. A mighty man is not delivered by much strength. A horse is a vain thing for safety. Neither shall he deliver any of his great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. David was saying your security doesn't set in a war horse. It sets in the Lord our God. And so it is in, in uh, Proverbs 21.31, our text for today. Solomon tells the future leaders of Israel, and, and us, by the way, the horse is made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. 
Psalm 21, 31, I mean, it teaches us very clearly that without the Lord, there is no success. And so consequently, give God the glory and put all of your trust in Him. He can and He will deliver you from, from every ill, whatever it might be, every conceivable danger or enemy, whether day or night, whether it's a threat that is seen or unseen. There's a very interesting word here that I want us to look at in this, in this text. It's this word, word victory. The word that's translated for victory, and I, I want to say it to you, and I, I want you to see if you hear what I hear. And maybe we'll learn through that the origin of this word. The word that's used here is teshua. Teshua. That may remind you of another word that perhaps you've heard before, Yeshua. Yeshua. Teshua means salvation. The word for victory here literally means salvation. And Yeshua means Jesus is, or Yahweh is salvation. Salvation is from the Lord. It means that the Lord will not abandon you. Nor will he forsake you. In Second Kings five one tells the interesting story of Naaman. You remember the story of Naaman the Syrian. And Naaman went down because he had heard that there was someone in Israel who could heal him of his leprosy. And so he went down there. And what was the king's thought? Oh, they're coming after us now. This is all a guise in order for them to take care of us. And, of course, Elisha, you know, says, yeah, no, none of that. Now, my, my point is not to tell that story, but just to remind you of it. My point is actually this. At some point, if you're interested, I want you to go look on Wikipedia or any other source of information that you want and look at the Assyrian Empire. And what you'll find is that empire went all the way from Lebanon uh, down to the south of Jordan. It went all the way from Egypt over to the east of Iraq. But there's this little dot, this little tiny little spot, little nothing of a spot called Judah that the Assyrians were never able to take, right in the middle of it. And that was because the Lord had willed it so. The horse is made ready for the day of battle but victory belongs to the Lord. And here's the point. You may be wondering, what is all this about the horses and all that? Did you know that Israel was forbidden, forbidden to breed horses? Not only were they forbidden to breed horses, they could not import horses. Horses were not to be a part of Israel's society. The Lord Himself denied these things from the future kings of Israel. We find that in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. I'm going to read it if you care to go there. I think you'll find it a fascinating passage. It's the only time in the entire Pentateuch that the Lord speaks to the future kings of Israel. And in that, He gives certain instructions. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17 reads this. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, 
like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses. He can have a few for himself or accuse the people uh, or uh, cause the people to uh, return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. So let's just tease some of these things out. First, the king would be divinely appointed. So we see that in 15a. Second, the king would not be an outsider. He would be from among the assembly. That's in 15b. And then what we're going to do is we're going to skip, skip up to number six. He was not to uh, take much silver and gold from the people. That's in verse 17. But our interest lies in the fourth and fifth items. Fourth, the king of Israel would depend on the Lord for victory. Everyone at that time knew exactly what horses meant. Horses meant War horses meant security of the nation. And God had already demonstrated that He could destroy the Egyptian army. You know, I mean, that, that, that was the most modern military of the time, and He, and he took it out. Uh, and so, at least the ones who were pursuing uh, Israel. And the other thing was that He was to be faithful to the covenant. Now, most people... Oh, they get lost in the wives business. How many wives Solomon had. That's not the point. You got, why did he have wives is the point. The point is for the wives and the reason that it's stated here in, in this passage in Deuteronomy 17 is so that he would not be making treaties, security alliances with other nations through these wives. And there was a problem, uh, of course, that they, they had with that. Uh, the wives had, were of a different faith. I'll come back to that in a minute. So why is it that the Lord would deny these two things of the king or any of the kings? And it's simple. It makes the king, it makes Israel dependent on something or someone other than God. Now, something happened to Solomon. Uh, we don't know what, we don't know when, but at some point Solomon fell in love with horses and with foreign women. I mean, as with all sin, I'm quite certain uh, that it did not begin, you know, with Solomon demanding an army. Oh, I want to build an army. Oh, I want to build a harem. I don't think that's what it was all about. Likely, his beginning with this was a gift from a foreign a dignitary gave him a horse, and he liked he liked that. It was likely that he thought this is very sensible to establish a security agreement with another country next to us. So the way to prevent them from killing our people is to have some of their most precious people, i.e., daughters of kings, living here with me. 
safeguards all of that so everybody lives in safety. Now, we'll never know exactly what that process was because we're not, we're not told. But from all indications, it seems that his love of horses and security agreements with other nations is what began his separation from God. What we are told in 1 Kings 4.26 reads this way, Solomon, by the end of his reign had 40,000 stalls for horses and chariots. And he had 12,000 horsemen. Read, 12,000 cavalry. Now Solomon had begun this slow descent because of his love of horses and treaties. And more accurately, he shifted himself from dependence upon God to dependence upon himself. I mean... It's easy to see why when you would go out and say, Solomon would say, hey, let's go look at our stables. I want to show you some chariots. And they were lined up as far as the eye could see. Why wouldn't you trust in those instead of a God that you can't see? I mean, why wouldn't you put your reliance in this fighting machine as opposed to God who was invisible? It's reminiscent of 2 Kings uh, chapter 6, is it not? When the, uh, the servant, I'll read it for you. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. And he comes back into Elisha, right? And he says, oh, sir, what shall we do now? I'm sure it was a lot more animated than that. And the young man cried to Elijah, to Elisha. And so Elisha told him, Don't be afraid. And, you know, I'm sure the guy thought, are you nuts? Are you crazy? What do you mean, don't be afraid? And then Elisha said, for there are more on our side than on theirs. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes and he saw the Lord's host arrayed around them with Horses and chariots of fire. What a wonderful sight. I think that that young servant was not afraid any longer. But God wants us. He wanted them. He wants us to rely on Him. The the issue of importing horses, I'm sure, initially seemed to be a small thing. was not a, a big deal. But it was important to God. But one thing led to another, and pretty soon Solomon ended up with 40,000 stalls for his horses. And then he ended up, I mean, no good came from that, but nevertheless, he didn't see anything bad come from it, so he thought, eh, maybe Deuteronomy 17 doesn't mean exactly what it means, so I'm going to start with these security agreements and bringing all these, these foreign wives in. Now, let me just say this as an aside. I don't want anybody to get on the wrong track here. Biblically speaking, the issue of marriage is a matter of faith, not birth. Not only is there nothing amiss in marrying another person from another country, if it's in the household of faith, it is to be cultivated, honored, and celebrated. So don't think there's any, there's nothing in this text about marriage and who you marry. It's all about 
marrying someone, when I say who you marry, I mean from another country. It's all about faith. It's all about these women did not believe what Solomon believed. And as a result of that, Solomon, Solomon, you know, we'll say, oh, Solomon had a divided heart. No, Solomon became an idolater. Let's just say it as it is. The man slipped. He did not finish well. And the result was terrible. The kingdom was torn in half. The real problem of his horses and his harem is a matter of security and who are you going to trust for security. And Solomon decided he was going to trust the nations around him and he decided he was going to trust in the war horses. He fell victim to the same process of temptation to compromise that we face. He compromised on what he thought was small. And you know, if you do that enough, oh yeah, I've done that like 17 times. I've asked the Lord to forgive me, and you know what He did? And you know, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't think there's any big deal here. After all, it's kind of in a gray area anyway. I mean, some people think it's wrong, but these people over here, they think it's right, so it's all good. And we are led into some things that then bring about major sin. Why? Because those small compromises weaken our character over time, and they lead to some very unpleasant things. This whole story makes me wonder what our horses are. I wonder who we trust in for our security. I mean, is it, is it our money? Perhaps our lineage. Perhaps education. Maybe our homes, our skills, our talents, our abilities, whatever it might be. Perhaps our politicians, or our government. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm stunned by how many people take their cues from celebrities. Oh, but the more serious among us, we take our cues from the, the scientists and the philosophers and the deep thinkers, maybe ed- economists and educators, whoever they are. But I tell you what, to the degree that we trust in any of those for our security, to that degree we have lessened our trust in God. We need to put our trust in the Lord no matter what the mechanism is, it is that He uses to secure us. Abraham Lincoln said, Without God, I cannot succeed. With God, I cannot fail. Obviously, God expects us to do all the preparation that's necessary to be successful or victorious in, in all of our endeavors. You know, I mean, just the soldiers had to train the horses and they got to provide the nourishment and the shelter and all this. There's a huge logistical entailment, you know, piece that goes, that goes with that. And we need to prepare our own minds and our own hearts. We need to do the things that God wants us to do to be prepared for the battles that we face in life. And He also He wants us to obey Him regardless of the outcome. Many times we minister with no certainty that we will have success. No certainty that we will have victory at all. But we have to leave the outcome with God, and we can't worry about time. And after all, Joseph was 18 years in prison. 
before he was vindicated. Psalm 37 tells us, Wait upon the Lord and and He will give you the desires of your heart. Trust also in Him and He will bring things to pass. Let us not deceive ourselves in thinking that by our wisdom or our work or our skill or whatever it might be can earn favor with God or earn security from God. He gives those things as, uh, as we're told in the Scripture, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven. And He enables us through the power of His Holy Spirit to, to achieve victory or salvation as the word is here. Uh, temporal, uh, that is. Not by power... Well, and, and you could actually apply this to even ultimately. Not by power or by might, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts, this mountain will be removed. It's a simple dependence. I mean, and for us as believers, our dependence come directly from Jesus Christ. In John 15, Jesus says, Remain in Me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in Me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in Me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from Me, you can do a few small things. Apart from Me, you can do, you know, lots of stuff. No, what does it say? A lot of you remember memorized this verse. Apart from Me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Human-generated success does not stand the test of time. God measures success by His standards, not by ours. And what some people think of as successful ministry and service to God is in fact phony in the eyes of God. I mean, Solomon appeared to be wealthy beyond measure. Solomon was this king that no one was able to take over. They wouldn't even try. And yet, out of all that, in the end, his life was was a failure. We read that in second or in first Kings eleven. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his father, had been finished well in the eyes of the Lord. Regardless of the probability of human success, God's plans are the only ones that have any hope of succeeding. Even if the cause is noble, and even if the cause is just, David wrote, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. On this Veterans Day, honor those who have served and fought for our country. We are not kings, monarchs, or presidents. We're simple men and women. But we're simple men and women who are bound by the cords of the love held by the Father. We don't have any horses, not for war, or treaties with other nations. We're we're just men and, and women 
with financial, physical, relational, and emotional burdens, all of which threaten our security, all of which tend to cause us pain internally. And yet it was God who by His love, as demonstrated in the death of His Son on the cross, He is our security. It was around 7 p.m. at the Mexico City Olympic Stadium in 1968. And it was starting to get dark and the last of the Olympic marathon runners uh, had, had, already, had already finished. In fact, it was an hour earlier that uh, uh, Mama Waldi had, had uh, crossed, uh, crossed the finish line. But then the last few remaining folks who were there, they heard... You know, they heard some sirens and they heard, saw some flashing lights and uh, they, they looked towards the entry into the stadium uh, as to who would it be that was coming, coming in. You know, I mean, the marathon is a brutal thing. It's like 60, 20, 26 uh, miles. How many of you run a marathon, right? Yeah, okay, so we got, we got one. <laughs> I haven't done that. So they looked at the gate and there was a sole figure out there. He was a Tanzanian. His name was uh, John Ahwadi. And uh, he was the last man to finish in 1968. Last guy. His leg was bandaged up and bloodied and he could hardly walk. And he literally had to limp his way across the, the finish line because he had, he had taken a really bad fall earlier in the race. And there were a few reporters that were hanging around for other events and this and that. So one of them went up to him and, and said this to him. You are, are badly in, injured. Why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? And, uh, and really with, with dignity, uh, Ahwari said this. He said, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me to finish. On the morning of January 26, 2009, my brother called me and the only words that he could manage to say were, Josh is dead. Josh, my nephew who I mentioned before, joined the army. He followed in the footsteps of all his uncles. One who was in... Uh, explosive ordnance disposal technician during the Gulf War, one who was a Green Beret with countless actions. Of course, his father, who was a, a dog handler and fought in Vietnam, and then an artilleryman turned chaplain. And Josh left behind a beautiful wife and three children, and, uh, and one yet unborn. He was a Kiowa pilot. That's a small but very effective observation uh, platform. It's a helicopter. He was shot down near Kirkuk to try to help free the people there. And then back to my my brother. Josh was his only son. And uh, he's a man who still startles at the sound of thunder from his time in Vietnam. Vietnam. You know, the pains of war are great, whether on the home front uh, or the war front. 
And Veterans Day honors all living or dead. And I believe the veterans here are worthy of double honor. They've already stood. I'm going to ask them to stand again. If you would do that, please. If you've served our country in that capacity, please stand up. And I want you to do something else. I want all, I want all the rest of you to do something else for me. There are men, there are women, who are not with us today, but who are beloved by you. I want you to envision their presence here, whether father, brother, sister, mother, perhaps even child. I want you to envision them standing there. And I want those around you now, those who are seated, I want you to think on these things. First, Veterans tell a lot of stories, but there are things that they don't talk about. There are things that they won't share with you. It doesn't mean that they don't love you. It's just they know that there's no framework for which you to understand. It's okay, they do love you. Second, Veterans know more than most the pain of war because they've engaged in it, not because they've enjoyed it. Don't fall for that monstrous lie that our warriors are warmongers. They're not. They hate war more than most because they've been involved with it. They've written a blank check payable to the United States of America for the amount up to and including their life. Third, understand that freedom is not free. The veterans understand this more than anyone. The freedoms that we read in the letter today, simple things. Simple th- going roller skating. Going grocery shopping, whatever it is. You know, we have, we have men and women in harm's way this very second. And yet, we sit in luxurious freedom and comfort. And even those for the, uh, who never fought or experienced war, the number of birthdays and anniversaries and graduations and special events that they have missed is staggering. The number of Christmases on foreign soil or Thanksgiving or whatever it might be. And finally, Thanksgiving Day in less than two weeks is a day when we pause to give thanks to God for the things He has given to us. But on Veterans Day, we give thanks for the people who, by God's grace, has provided for our security and our ultimate security rests fully in Him. There are, there are a lot of things that I, that I could say even, even more. But God has chosen to keep us secure in this, in this way. And in this way, we honor Him and He honors us. Not one veteran will ever 
has ever or will ever demand your appreciation. They won't. You ask any veteran, no matter what they've been through, the horrors of war or simply uh, serving here in the States, and they'll just say they've done their duty. No more. And so it is that when the veteran finally crosses the finish line, and I want to say this now, because now I want you all to stand up. Please stand up. Because you are all veterans with Christ. You've all faced things that have tried people, tried to attempt to shame you, to demean you, to devalue you. That makes you a veteran. And when we come to the end of all things, and we're asked, you were so badly injured, visible or invisible, why didn't you quit? Why didn't you give up? And with quiet dignity, we will all respond, my God did not send me 7,000 miles or a lifetime to start this race. He sent me to finish. May God bless each one of you. May God bless America. Father, today we stand before you as those who understand that there is a cost for following Christ. And yet none of us think of that cost as anything terrible. Lord, we think of that cost as simply following Christ. And not only is it our duty, it's our joy. We praise You, we thank You for this day. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.